turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. Titled this, I've titled this sermon, Arming Yourself to Suffer Well. And we've been studying several observations in 1 Peter, and we've seen, I hope you've seen, that we ought to not be surprised that we are called to suffer. And there's a proverb uh, that says that an ounce of cure is worth what? A pound of prevention, right? It's, it's not in the book of Proverbs. That's, that's one of our Proverbs. And I hope that you would see that it pays dividends, not only to expect to suffer, but to be prepared well, to be equipped and prepared to suffer. And I can't multitask and talk while turning to First Peter. So, okay, there we go. But we suffer. Christians suffer. We have seen that we suffer because of devils and demons that we wage war against in the supernatural sphere. We suffer because of sinful and corrupt men that we encounter in the political sphere, in the social spheres. And then we suffer because of the sinfulness of our own fleshly lusts. In, in, in the sphere in which you dwell, we suffer. And considering that we suffer, and considering that God has shown himself to not have kicked us to the curb in our suffering, but that he is with us, that he is with you, and that he can and often does work triumph through your suffering, in your suffering, from your suffering, we are compelled to be prepared and equipped to suffer well, to suffer like a Christian ought to suffer. And in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, Peter gives us four ways to arm ourselves to suffer well. Four ways to suffer like a Christian, four principles that if you exercise them, you will be well armed in the tough days ahead. Remember, as we've said, if, if the days aren't tough for you now, relax, they will be. The four principles that he gives us uh, are, one, to imitate the attitude of Christ. That's in verse 1. The second will be to live for the will of God. That's in verse 2. In verses 3 and 4, we will, he will say to remember your repentance. And then in verses 5 and 6, he will say to remember the true judge. That's, let's read the text. First Peter 4, 1 through 6. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, Lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you, that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. 
but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So, let's start with verse 1, shall we? The first principle that Peter gives us is to imitate the attitude of Christ. Peter says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose. Now, notice the therefore. Best thing to do when you come across a therefore is to find out what the therefore is therefore, right? It's pointing back to something that Peter has recently covered. And Peter is, compared to Paul, Peter is very kind. Because not only uh, has he already said what the therefore is pointing to, but he he, he summarizes uh, what the therefore is there, what the reference is. And he tells us, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. Now, as as chapter 2 Uh, uh, as we work through chapter 2, we saw that Christ was reviled. We saw that he suffered. And as he built up his argument, as chapter 2 rose to a climax, we saw that Christ bore our sins in his body. He endured and he took upon himself the wrath of God because my sins and your sins were placed onto him and he died for those sins. Sins. He paid the penalty for those sins, which was death. He died. And as chapter 3 drew to a close, Peter zeroed in on that aspect of Christ's suffering. He, he, he zeroed in, he, he focused on Christ's death. Look, look at chapter 318. For Christ also, what for sins? He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God, having been what? Put to death in the flesh. And then he references that in 4.1 with the therefore and says, since Christ has suffered, zeroing back in on the fact that Christ has died and he paid the ultimate price for sins by dying. Yes, he was maligned. Yes, he was beaten. Yes, Jesus was spit upon, slandered, insulted. But more than that, more than all that, he died. He died in his suffering. He didn't stand up for his rights. He didn't demand to be heard. He didn't join a union. He didn't go on strike. He didn't chain himself to a tree. He didn't protest. Like a lamb led to slaughter, he opened not his mouth. And while he was slandered and reviled, what did, what did Paul, Peter tell us in chapter 2.23? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And we looked at briefly at Philippians 2, I think either last time or the time before that. We saw Christ's humiliation. We, we, we saw uh, Paul's Uh, a paraphrase of his suffering in that text where Christ didn't consider his deity something that he had to clutch onto. You remember we we read that. He didn't consider his rights, his prerogative, his, his privileges as God, something that he had to tenaciously cling onto for fear of losing it. 
but instead he humbled himself and he willingly, he wasn't coerced, he wasn't forced, he willingly marched into suffering. And he faithfully endured it and was thus exalted and rewarded by the Father. And why did Paul bring all that up? Philippians 2 verse 5, what does Paul say? Have this attitude also in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. That seems to be exactly what Peter is saying in our text. Imitate the attitude of Christ. Peter says, arm yourself with the same purpose. That, 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 that word, arm yourself, it literally means uh, weaponize yourself, equip yourself, take up the, 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 the principle or the attitude or the, the mind uh, the perspective which Christ had in his suffering. Take that up, make it your own. Have it. Stand in it. Be willing to go into suffering and embrace suffering, particularly, specifically, and hopefully for suffering for doing what is right. And, and if, usually when, suffering does come, you don't instinctively uh, and, and as a first course of action, look, look for how you can get out of it, right? That, that's what we do in our flesh. That's what the natural does. We try to get out of suffering. Or uh, what has become very uh, common these days is to try to play the victim card, right? And really trying to exalt yourself in the midst of suffering. Trying to get no- notoriety. But instead, like Christ, the Christian is called to humbly faithfully and patiently endure suffering and doing what Christ did, entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. That word entrusting himself that Peter used, it's the same word used to describe what Judas did to Jesus when the guards came. What, what verb in English do we use to describe that? Judas betrayed Jesus. When the word, when Peter uses that very same word in 2.23, it's entrust, paradidomy. Entrust yourself to God. So the next time that you get mad or frustrated or anxious, the next time that we lose control of ourselves, we have to stop and ask, what does it look like right now for me to hand myself over, to entrust myself over to God and to have an attitude like Christ in the midst of this suffering. That's the call for us to do. Have the attitude, imitate the attitude of Jesus Christ. And I believe the full weight of this instruction uh, to have uh, this willingness to suffer, to, ha- to have this patience, to have this uh, uh, endurance and suffering while trusting in God to do whatever he wants to do, I, I believe the full weight of that command comes to bear when one by one our rights and our privileges will be stripped away and more and more we are treated like less and less of a human being and to the point where our persecutors and those who harass us, those who malign us, those who, those who want to harm us will really have no second thought to taking our life. The more we progress to that I think the full weight of this command comes to bear. 
that was the attitude of Christ and trusting himself to God while he suffered for doing what was right at the hands of men who, not they didn't just want to silence him. They didn't want merely to disgrace him or relocate him. They wanted him dead. He offended them. He found them out. He showed the people their hypocrisy, and they hated him for it. Those who are called to, by Jesus to follow him and to become his disciples, you know what? They are given, we are given the same marching orders. Luke nine twenty three. Anyone wishes to come after me and become my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his what? Cross and follow me. Matthew ten thirty eight thirty nine. 39. He who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Christian, be willing to take up your cross. Now, the, what, what was the cross? The cross wasn't this cutesy little ornament that children would wear on their necklace, right? It, what was the cross? It was a death symbol. It was a shameful, humiliating, agonizing, painful symbol of death. It would be, can you imagine the, um, the, uh, the, 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 the outrage, the, the scan, that's what I'm looking for, scandal, Imagine the scandal if if some uh, 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 jewelry manufacturer were to make a little guillotine necklace, a little a little gas chamber bracelet, a little uh, I don't want to go too far into that one, but imagine the scandal, right? That's that's what the cross was in the early church. Jesus promised. Those who lost their life for his sake would find it. And that's precisely what Peter quickly reminds us as he finishes verse 1. So why do we arm ourselves with this attitude? Why do do we arm ourselves with this principle, with this attitude that Christ has? Because, Peter says, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased, has died. He who has suffered in the flesh, that's pointing to to death, has ceased from sin. Now, that phrase, ceased from sin, that is written in a particular tense. It's called the perfect tense, and that tells us it's a completed action. It's not, it's not like a, uh, a stop sign action where you stop but then resume it, right? Or uh, if it were a California stop sign, you don't even come to a complete stop and you just go through. This is you stop, you, put the, you pull the parking brake up, you put it in the park, you turn the engine off, you're done. You're not moving anymore. That's, that is, that's the, 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 the sense of the perfect tense. And you remain stopped. It's a ceasing with finality. And, and when are we told that our struggle with sin will cease with that sense of finality? In this life? As long as, I, as, long as Aaron possesses this, this fleshly body... When will our warfare against our sinfulness cease? You know. Death. 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-two to 43, I'll paraphrase. Paul tells us that we are sown a perishable body, but it will be raised an imperishable body. It, will be sown a, it is sown a dishonorable body. It will be raised in glory. 
he says if it's now natural, if it's now bound uh, according to natural laws, it will be raised spiritual. And the hope of the spiritual man or woman who loves God and hates his sin rests in God's promise that those who hear the gospel of Christ and come to Christ and believe in Christ and rest in Christ and die in Christ will in Christ be resurrected in the likeness of Christ. That is the hope of the Christian, is being resurrected in the likeness of Christ. That's having a body like his, folks. A glorified body, a sinless body, a body that doesn't lust, a body that doesn't burn and churn with, with, with sinful passions and that's not tempted by carnality. We, we know what temptation feels like, don't we? I mean, who, who here has not dieted, right? We, 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 uh, Jennifer and I went to dinner last night with some folks, and they, built, they, they made this wonderful uh, loaded potato cheese bacon soup with steak that I won't even try to hide the fact that there were lobes of fat on that piece of meat, and it smelled... And, and as soon as I walked in, I, mean, I walked into that house re- re- resolute. I am on my diet again. I'm going to be good. And that, you remember the old cartoons where the um, where you know grandma puts a pie on the window and the the scenty, smoky, traily thing is, and it finds the cartoon character who's taking a nap and it it you know it goes into his nose and then it goes, and the guy's like, you know, floating. Yeah, in a second, I was like, uh, uh, "I'm eating this stuff." That's 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 and, and 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 that's funny. We laugh at that, but you know, especially if you're over the age of 13, you know what the weight and the pull and the gravity of tempt of temptation is. You know, and the older you get, the longer you fight that battle. Don't you just long to not have that conflict anymore? Arm yourself with the attitude of Christ to suffer well, to suffer faithfully, even if it costs you your life, because losing your life is actually the means of gaining your greatest reward. What, what an irony it is that the, the, the greatest threat, the greatest weapon in the arsenal of the enemy, the threat of death, is actually the means to the Christian's greatest reward, the cessation of sin, the acquisition of that glorified body, and being ushered immediately into the presence of Jesus Christ, the Lord who loves you and died to purchase you and make you his. Take that attitude upon yourself. That's the first principle that Peter gives us. The second really complements that one because it's grammatically he's still in the same sentence for the first principle arm yourself with the with the same attitude that christ has second purpose so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men but for the will of god second principle live for the will of god and where peter gives us here both positively and negatively what we are to live for negatively we are no longer to live for our lusts 
we're to spend the rest of our lives as long as as long as Aaron lives in this and Matthew lives in that and Don lives in that the the rest of the time that we have left we are to be resisting and fighting and withstanding the lusts of our flesh now let me remind you back at way way back in 211 Peter Peter first introduced the lusts of the flesh he says there to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. That was really the kickoff to uh, that whole line of series that we had looking at what our conduct should be in our suffering. And, and he, he brought up fleshly lusts to, to, to kick off this discussion on our conduct. And what, what are lusts of the flesh? Let me remind you, the, the lusts of the flesh are not like someone that you may rent a room out into your house, if, if you should have a spare bedroom, and you, you rent it out to someone, you give them a contract that has terms and conditions, and if they're a wise person, they're going to read that over, right? And they're, as long as they want to remain in your house, they are going to, what? Abide by those rules, right? They're going, they're going to follow those terms and conditions. And... You know, for the sake of argument, let's just assume they uh, that you've given them a, a, a first or second chance. But after a while, if they continually break the terms, if they are late on the rent, if they start helping themselves to the, stu- the contents of your fridge, if they start treating the place like it's their place, what's going to happen? They're gone, right? You, eviction. They're gone. You're going to kick them out. But fleshly lusts are not like that. Fleshly lusts are more like a squatter or a hostile invader who, who has found their way into your house and they refuse to leave. And you don't want them there. They have no right being there. And until the police arrive, you just have to deal with the fact that these people are in your house. Right, And if it's in California, you're going to be waiting about six months before the police arrive. Can you tell them from California? Peter said there, abstain from them. Well, what does that mean? Neglect them. Don't feed them. Don't contribute anything to them. Make no provision for them. Tr- treat them as you would a hostile aggressive invader treat them like an unwelcome guest don't bake cookies for them right and peter says it another way do not live for them more biblical way uh uh, the way the, the scripture normally would paraphrase this is repentance do not live for your lusts don't live for your sins repent of your sins cease from your sinning. And so I have to, we have to pause a second and we need to ask ourselves, is there a sin today that we need to repent of? Is there a sin in our lives? Is there a lust in our flesh that we have given ourselves over to that we need to repent? And notice he calls them the lusts. He calls them the lusts of men. These are the lusts of men. It, that's a way of saying these are the lusts that all men have. Men is in people in general. These are common lusts. 
These are not temptations that are specifically designed and geared for you or you. These are, these are things that we all feel. These are tinges and, and, and drawings that we, we can all associate with. And perhaps because they're so common, because they are so typical, maybe that for some takes away the shame that we are tempted by them. I mean, after all, so many other people do them. Are there lusts of men that we need to repent of? Peter says, live no longer for them. So that that was the negative aspect of it. Positively, what are we to live for? Live for the will of God. This is so important because true biblical repentance requires that as you turn away from something, you need something to turn to. A bad behavior needs to be replaced with a good behavior. Romans 6, 11 to 13, Paul captures this. He says, Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and as members, your members as instruments of righteousness to God. You see on one hand, stop doing this, kill it, consider it dead, put it off. On this hand, put it on, consider yourself alive to this, present yourself to this. That's what repentance is. So the next time that you're tempted to sin, according to these lusts, according to the lusts of men, be it with your eyes as we are tempted to look at something. There, there tends to be a, a one or two things that are thrown our way these days that are tempting to look at, right? As we're tempted to look at things with our eyes, as we're tempted to, to do something with our hands, as we're tempted to go somewhere with our feet, as we are tempted to say something, to speak gossip or slander or a white lie or fib with our tongue, as we are tempted to give glory or to uh, uh, idol, idol, well, that is not a word, I can't use that. As we are tempted to devote massive amounts of mental resources to things that really in the end don't matter. Being idolatrous with your mind, that's what I was trying to say. Peter says, stop it. Stop it. The the time for that is past. Don't live for that. Live for the will of God of God. Live no longer for that stuff. How, how can we make that change today? I, I hope that question lingers with you as you leave. How can we repent today? How can we live for the will of God today? How can we live for the will of God, especially if it means being inconvenienced, even if it means suffering? Do we ever see living for the will of God instead of the desires for the flesh and the attitude of Christ? I mean, let's try to wed these two, these two principles together. Do we ever see suffering for the will of God and the attitude of Christ come together? You bet we do. What was the Lord's heartfelt prayer as he is in Gethsemane and as he's unloading his burdened heart to the Father? 
Luke 22:42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. You finish this. You finish the prayer. Yet, not your not. Sorry, I almost said something. I just almost did a 180. Yet, not my will, but your will. So live for the will of God. Third, Peter tells us to remember your repentance. Remember your repentance. First, imitate the attitude of Christ, then live for the will of God and remember your repentance. He says in verse 3, For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. That's a little different word. And what he's doing is he's he, here he's illustrating the life pattern of the unconverted. He's illustrating what we used to be, what you used to be before you repented. The life of the unconverted, the unrepentant, the unregenerated, the unbeliever, those who are outside of Christ. That person's life is just tragic and it's devastating because on the outside, you know what? The, the, the desires, the lusts of the flesh and the desires of, we could say the pagan in, in, in this context, presents itself as convenient. It's cheap. It's easy. It's, it's full of long-lasting satisfaction. But what, is it, what do the lusts of the flesh and the desires prove themselves to yield. They are, in the end, bitter and poisonous. They are, in the end, costly. And any pleasures that our lusts and that our sins give us are only temporary and they lead to increasing problems and hardship. And I, Scripture convinces me, I hope it convinces you, that should we give ourselves over to those, and if we pursue, if we, as Peter says, we we pursue a course for those things that we will as we become those advanced in years like Solomon who who was full of regret full of emptiness and as the fleeting might of of his own strength was waning what was his what was his analysis what was his final analysis everything is vanity and chasing after the wind peter here says, in effect, don't wait till you get to that point. He says, however long you lived in the flesh, however long you were on that course pursuing those things, however long you were unrepentant, it was enough. He calls it literally the already having been past time. The, 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 he said in, in the NASB, it says the time already past is sufficient. However long you were like that, it was enough. Whether you got converted by God's grace at the age of 8 or 70 or 80 or older, however long you were in that life, it was enough. So he, he, he calls them the, the, the things that they pursued, the desires of the Gentiles. And so is, is, this, is this the lusts of the flesh? Are they the same thing? Well, kind of. The... The, where lusts of the flesh are more passionate impulses. And these are temp, those, those were temptations that come upon you quickly, revish, reviciously. 
fiercely, powerfully. The desires here are more speaking of a, a, a thought-out trajectory of your life. These are, these are overarching values. These are overarching goals. These are long, uh, deep-rooted and long-lasting ambitions. These are desires that you have set far ahead of you, and you are planning your life around obtaining and achieving those desires. And these are desires that we naturally spend a good amount of time and a good amount of effort trying to fulfill, like the desire to have fun, the desire to be satisfied, the desire to be secure. I think he, I think he calls them the desires of the Gentiles because he's speaking about the desires uh, of those uh, who are um, outside of the covenant relationship of God. These are desires that the natural man seeks to fill. And he gives us six terms to describe this pursuit, this this course. Six terms. He says, having pursued a course of sensuality, of lusts, of drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Now, let's let's take each one of these piecemeal. First one is a sensuality. This is unbridled unrestrained vice and debauchery of all kinds. This is someone someone who is sensual, who is given over to sensuality, is someone who excessively indulges in their pleasures. This is someone who, who does not care about repercussions. This is someone who says consequences be darned. They need, they want, they desire, they long for, they crave that rush of immediate gratification. That is the number one priority for them. Second is lusts. Similar desires, as I said, these are the more impulsive, passionate desires. These are are cravings and desires that blitzkrieg you, that come on you quickly like a bolt of lightning. I I looked up online what, uh, what... um, what, what a, uh, a, a crime of passion was. And, and, and a crime of passion is described as a sudden, violent crime out of a strong, sudden impulse rather than premeditation. So the word desire that we looked at a second ago could be described as premeditated longings. Lusts are more impulsive, sudden, impa- uh, uh, desires the heat of the desires in the heat of the moment and then drunkenness is an interesting word it literally means bubbling up or wine bubbling up and this is describing uh, habitual intoxication and the the image here is of a lifestyle or, or, or people who they have they have always got to have a bottle in their hand they have always got to have a six pack in the fridge they have always got to have uh, a drink when they're stressed, when they're frustrated, as soon as they get home, they're already, half hour after they're home, they're already in their third or fourth can. Then he says carousing. This is wild parties, orgies. In an extra-biblical uh, instance, it was describing a a staggering band of drunks as they're 
wandering through the streets at night, and they're singing loudly, probably very off-key, but not that it mattered at the time. And carousing is, is, is describes the, the intensity that finally gets the, the, the neighbors to call the police because the, 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 the disturbance has become a point where it's a public nuisance. That's carousing. And then drinking parties, uh, not too different from the other two. This is gatherings uh, with the intention of getting intoxicated. The, 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 the goal is to get wasted drunk. And then he concludes with abominable idolatries. And again, taking the last two ideas, this is really taking that and applying it to uh, uh, gatherings that really had a, a religious context to it. There, there was a cult uh, of Dionysius. There was a cult of Bacchus, the, the Greek god of wine. And they would get together and they would drink and drink and drink, and drink. And if they didn't get wasted drunk, it was a failure. That's what they lived for. And these all came together to describe this overall, this overarching pattern of giving oneself over to carnality and shutting out the mind and just letting the flesh, letting the lusts of the flesh and the desires of the carnal self just dictating what you do and you just go on autopilot you're not thinking Peter is saying however long you were given over to that kind of lifestyle however long that was you it was more than enough and when when you're in your right mind you know you can recognize you can admit the futility of that lifestyle you can admit the futility you can see the vanity, the uselessness of, the, of, of pursuing those things. You know they lead you to nowhere. You know they really don't satisfy. You know that they numb you to the problems at your feet. And then what's worse is they even are prone to add to the problems at your feet, making your later condition worse than you were at the first. This futility and self-destruction is what you were called from when you became a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you repented. Is there a cost to repentance? Is there a cost to being called out of that? Oh, you bet there is. And Peter gives us two of the consequences. He says, in all this, verse 4, in all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation. And they what? They malign you. There was at one time, that those were at one time your friends. Those were at one time your peers. Those who have remained in the lifestyle of the unbeliever, they are Peter says they are surprised that you don't run with them anymore. And that word surprised, it can mean puzzled or shocked or amazed or startled, but it really carries the idea of being offended, of, of, of being resentful by your being different. You know, there's a difference between I can't figure out why you do that and I can't figure out why you do that. Can you see the, can you see the difference? Kids, can you tell the difference? He's like, I can, I can. 
You used to run with them. You used to be one of the pack. You used to do those things. You used to do them for the same reasons that they do them. You had the same desires as they did. You know what? You, you and I, we could hang with the best of them because we were one of them. But one day we heard the gospel and God changed us and we were called out of that and we repented and we gave that up and we follow Jesus. So now when we get that text, when we get that email, when we get that invite, that there's going to be a party after work, we don't go anymore. We don't go because we know what's, we know what goes on there. We know what, what they're going to do. We know what they talk about. We know how they talk. We know how they joke. We know that there's a difference, and your conscience won't let you rest if you go. And then you explain to them, you don't do that anymore. That's not who you are. And they get offended because in, in your response, there is an implied judgment. Where, whether you mean to judge them or not, that's how they perceive it. And so they begin, you know, and so they understand and they respect you for that, right? Usually no. Usually no. Usually they start poking fun at you. And it starts at poking fun, maybe. Quickly it becomes slanderous. You get called maybe a goody two-shoes. You'll be called a hypocrite. You'll be called a, a self-righteous something, something. For the time being, living a life of repentance shows itself to be really costly, doesn't it? Painful. Sometimes lonely. To repent of your sins and have this lifelong confession, this lifelong testimony that affirms, that complements, that goes alongside your repentance may cost you dearly, but, beloved, it will be pittance. It will be nothing compared to the cost that those who do not repent will pay. And that comparison between the two costs, between what you pay for now in your suffering the cost that you may have to pay in losing friends and being maligned and offending the world right now will show itself to be nothing compared to the cost that those who continue to hate and rebel against God will pay when you comp- in the day to come. And, and we see that as we remember the fourth point, who the true judge is. Verses 5 to 6. It says, Though they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Cost you pay will be what? Rejection. Perhaps it comes at the hands of those you used to run with. Maybe it comes at the hands of your family. Maybe it comes from your coworkers. Maybe it comes from your boss. Maybe it comes from your neighborhood and those at the community at large. 
Perhaps there will be a day where true, genuine, orthodox Christianity will be illegal in the United States of America, and the American way will be to persecute Christians. That's what a true American will do. That day could come. And that's a cost that you and I will have to pay in the moment. But as for them, Peter says, they will give account to him who judges the living and the dead. They will have to give an account. They will have to balance the books. Right, and we all know the fun we have when we when we balance the books of our budget, right? Going over our expenditures and our purchases. I quake in my heart when I think about those who do not have a sufficient savior. The balancing of God's ledger that they will have to give an account for their sins. I shudder to think of that. And it seems to me that Peter, he's anticipating the argument that a Christian's critic will make, which is really, there's two things that the unbeliever is certain of. One, it is no fun to be a Christian, right? There's all these things we can't do. We can't go to the party. The unbeliever can go to the party. We can't go to the party, and we can't do the drinking, and we can't do all the stuff that they do at the party. That's one thing that they're certain of. It's not fun to be a Christian. And the other thing that they're certain of is that we all, the Christian and the unchristian, the believer and the unbeliever, we're all going to die and we're all going to go to the worms. So it's, it's not fun to be a Christian and we're all going to leave this life behind. And I think this is what was happening behind the scenes. Peter's Christian audience are living the Christian life. They hear the call to suffer. They repent and they break off from, from any trace any traces of their sinful past that have perhaps still been lingering. And those that see this, they're offended, they're surprised, they don't like this. They begin to malign and slander the Christians because it seems absurd to them that if we're all going to die and go to the worms, at least have some fun along the way, right? Isn't that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15? 13, if there's no resurrection from the dead, we of all men are to be what? The most pitied. If there is not a life after this, we are the most pitiful. And as he further develops that argument, he says in verse 32, and just as a side note, be, become familiar with 1 Corinthians 15 if you're not. Side note ended. Verse 32, he says, if the dead are not raised, and he, he's quoting from Isaiah 22, he says, if the dead are not raised, if there's not a resurrection, if there's not something definitive after this, then let's eat and drink and let's be merry. That's... That's Paul's way of, uh, uh, of saying the carousing thing that Peter was saying a second ago. If this is all there is, folks, let's do some of that. Let's do some of that good old American carousing. That's if Christians who are called to suffer in this life, if we have nothing substantive to receive, if if our hope is a facade and we are truly fools, 
then the unbeliever is absolutely right. If there's nothing after this, the best we can do is make the few spins we have left around this sun. We, we, we ought to eke something pleasurable out of that, right? We, we need to avoid and abstain from as, mu- as much pain as we can. We need to maximize the pleasure we have because at the end, it's all gone. It all goes up in smoke. How we are judged by the standards of the flesh. If that is the judgment that truly matters, then the critic is right. If how you are judged in the flesh is the judgment that you need to be concerned about. The unbeliever, the pagan, the atheist, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, they're all right. But if that is not the judgment that you should be concerned about, perhaps they're wrong. If the temporary judgment that we receive in the flesh, if it is infinitely dwarfed by the judgment that we receive by one who judges not only the living but also the dead, well, that that changes things a little bit, doesn't it, folks? What does Jesus say about the one whom you and I should fear? Luke 12, 4-5. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that they have no more that they can do. But I will warn you. He doesn't say, I will encourage you as who to fear. I will tell you whom I suggest. I will warn you. There's a sternness here. I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. So let me ask you, who is the true judge? Potus? Scotus? Any other Otises there are? is, Is Congress our those scientists that are always being referred to in whatever study comes out, is any recognized uh, conglomerate of man or any man the judge, any nation the judge that you should fear? Or perhaps is it someone more? Fear him who will judge the living and the dead. Now, Peter concludes, that's a sober thought, right? Peter concludes that thought of judgment on an encouraging note. He says, For the gospel has for this purpose been preached, even to those who are, and I, the NI, I like that the NIV includes now. It's been preached, the gospel has been preached to those who are now dead. So these are Christians who have died in Christ. That though they are judged in the flesh as men, they've been reviled and slandered and maligned and thought fools and idiots. Though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Folks, by this time there are many who had heard the gospel and believed and received the Lord Jesus and had died in Jesus. Remember Stephen in Acts 8. There were many, uh, 
we read in church history that uh, it was the Jewish Christians who suffered more earlier on uh, at the hands of the, um, the, the, the Jews who remained Jews. We saw, especially as, as there were the, the hardened Jewish community uh, and leaders were headed up by Saul, how he was breathing threats against the church. He, he was dragging whole families off, taking them to prison. And the conflict that the early church had as, as the gospel was going out and the churches were spreading despite the conflict. And there were many believers by now who had died. And if Nero hadn't already done it, he would soon blame Christians as the ones who started the fi- uh, who set Rome on fire in 64 A.D. Peter is writing from Rome, folks. This is happening in Peter's backyard. It was tough and costly to be a Christian. And the temptation for those who were still alive and were continuing to suffer for the name of Jesus would be to think, hey, maybe the critics have something here. Maybe they got a point. Peter reminds them the gospel came for this very purpose, that those who received it and believed it and died in it, though from the perspective of the flesh, from, from, the, from the understanding of carnal men, they, Christians, were fools. But in reality, the truth, the concrete, sure truth is right now, they, they were alive in the Spirit. And they were in the presence of God. They were alive in Spirit just as Christ was alive in Spirit. That's the same phrase that Peter used to describe Christ after he died back at the end of chapter 3. They were alive in Spirit according to the will of God. The very same will that called them into suffering was the will that willed them to life after they died. And that's a sure hope for all who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me conclude with an account of the Bishop of Carthage about around 250 to around 250 AD. His name was Cyprian. At a, and this was at a time when being a Christian was, was illegal in the Roman Empire. And he was summoned by Paternus, uh, at, because all citizens, now he's a bishop, but all citizens of the Roman Empire were called to profess faith in the, in the Roman deities and to worship them. And he said, in essence, he says, I can't do that. And uh, Paternus, the governor, says, do you persist? And he says, I can't change. So he, he exiles him, and his response, I go. A year later, there's a new governor, and he asks, Are you Thasius Cyprian? Cyprian says, I am. The most sacred emperors have commanded you to conform to the Roman, whites, Roman rites of worship. I refuse. Think about the consequences. Cyprian says, Do as you must. In so clear a case, I do not care about the consequences. The new governor says, Thasius Cyprian, you have long lived an ungodly life. You have brought together a number of people bound by an illegal association, and you have confessed yourself an enemy of the gods and religion of Rome. The pious 
Most sacred and exalted emperor has tried in vain to bring you back to conformity with, the, with, their custom, with his custom of religious worship. Therefore, since you have been arrested as the chief and ringleader in these notorious crimes, we shall make you an example to those who have wickedly associated with you. The authority of the law shall be sealed in your blood. It is the sentence of this court that Thasius Cyprian be put to death by the sword. How do you think Cyprian responded? How would you respond in that moment? Cyprian says, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we read this tough call to suffer, to be willing to suffer, even to the potential cause of death. But Lord, we are reminded that it's a cost that you willingly paid for us. And we read through the annals of history that time and time and time again you proved yourself faithful to sustain and encourage those who were being slain daily for you. Help us to cherish the hope that we have in you. Let it be so vested deeply in our hearts that the cost we may pay, that the momentary and light affliction we may have now for belonging to you would just be so paltry compared to the prize that we have in your name. Help us to keep these things in our hearts. Help us to have a willingness to suffer for you. And use our suffering, use the circumstances that we have, that the folks, these precious folks have in their lives, some of them not very enjoyable. Use them to enrich them spiritually. Use them to bring you glory. Amen.